1: Welcome to New Books in Fantasy and Adventure, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This is your host, Gabrielle Matthew, author of the Historical Fantasy Falcon series and Girl of Fire, the first in the YA series. My July interview is with Emily B. Martin, the author of the Feel Good Fantasy, Sunshield. Here's my review. A frustrated prince out to make a name for himself, a mysterious young woman who goes by the name of the Sunshield Bandit, and a prisoner named Townsend. Emily B. Martin lets us get to know each character in alternating POVs, while still keeping the eventual connections hidden. Martin makes you empathize with her characters, creating the rare, plot-driven book, or you still feel like you're following the travails of people who could be your friends. The Sunshield Bandit is fiercely protective of her cobbled-together family, a group of escaped bond servants and slaves like herself. Along with her loyal coy dog, Rat, and her friends, she subsists in a harsh desert from the gleanings of her stagecoach robberies. Since she's constantly rescuing more enslaved children, some of them sick, her supplies don't go far. She's often hungry, feels guilty about not being able to help more, and she has a huge chip on her shoulder. Tamsin's problem is obvious. She's been thrown into a stone cell, had her tongue mutilated and her hair shorn, and is looking for a way to let rescuers know where she is. It turns out Tamsin is very dear to someone in a high-placed position. Veron, the prince of the Silverwood Mountains, seems to have fewer challenges than the other two on the face of it. On duty as a translator for the ambassador of a neighboring country, Varon has come to the nation of Maguia as part of the eastern country's effort to stop indentured servitude. At first, his biggest problem is the blisters the shoes of the Maguian court leave on his feet. Soon, though, Varon and his companions from the east, the ambassador and his daughter, encounter suspicion in the McQuayan court, and become the target of serious accusations. When the ambassador's daughter gets sick with a mosquito-borne disease, it looks like their diplomatic mission might be over. unless Lesveran takes a big chance, and reaches out to the Sunshield Bandit for help with the only thing that might convince the McQuayan prince to cooperate. So a little bit about Emily. She splits her time between working as a park ranger and an author-illustrator, resulting in her characteristic eco-fantasy adventures. She's an avid hiker and explorer, and her experiences as a ranger help inform the characters and world she creates on paper. When not patrolling places like Yellowstone, the Great Smoky Mountains, or Philmont Scout Ranch, she lives in South Carolina with her husband Will, and two daughters, Lucy and Amelia. So we're going to start off the show introducing her, and then she'll do a short reading. Welcome to the show, Emily.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Sure, my pleasure. And let's start off. You were going to have a reading from your book.
0: Yeah, so this is the beginning of one of Lark's chapters, and it's one of my favorite little passages. Um to get to know our main protagonist. It just gives a really good glimpse into her thought process and, uh, and how she sees the world around her. The thunderhead builds behind me, sending its snarls and rumbles out over the sagebrush flats and broken rock arches. I breathe deeply from Gemma's back, relishing the cool blue feel of the air. I need rain. The desert always needs rain, but these past few days in particular, I especially need the rain. I need it to rinse the mats from rats' fur and replenish the water pocket in three lines. I need it to flush out creatures from their dens, to draw them down to my deadfall traps. I need it to bring a bloom to the yellow lilies in Yampa so I can dig up their bulby roots without crawling around the rocks, trying to guess if a certain weed is poisonous or not. But I need the rain for myself, too. The anticipation of a good thing is always better than actually having the good thing, because good things never last. Soft blankets get gritty and threadbare. Fresh cornbread goes hard and stale if it's not eaten quick enough. And the rain-washed desert dries up all too fast, the sudden blossoms and rushing gullies giving way back to tough plant flesh and cracked earth. No, give me the expectation of a thunderstorm over its aftermath any day. At least when it ends, it ends in the actual event, rather than a memory. So that's just a short little passage, and I, like I said, I really like how it shows us, um, you know, we see Lark as this kind of gritty, hardcore bandit, but she also has this introspective side and is very attuned to what's going on around her. And she has to be because it's how she survives, but it's also just she has kind of a, I think, a poetic reverence for her landscape without even really thinking that she has that poetic reverence. So I really like that section.
1: It's also very telling that she just doesn't believe good things last, because later in the book, right. when she encounters a good thing or potentially a good thing, mm-hmm. she's like, "Uh, uh-uh, out of here." <laughs>
0: yep. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, she she really tends to be very mistrustful of things that feel too good to be true, um, because yeah, in her experience, it just those things are are never true. They never they never last. They never can be reliable.
1: Well, before we circle back to your three main characters, I wanted to Mm -hmm. note something about the setup. A lot of fantasy novels have a sadistic villain, but the most horrible person your book offers up is possibly Dirtwater Dobbs, a fight-prone poacher. Mm -hmm. As a villain, he's Mm -hmm. too stupid to be very frightening. Yet Sunshield Mm -hmm. is very suspenseful, and we root for our three characters. How do you think you achieved that?
0: Yeah, and no, you're right. There isn't really like a big bad in the in the novel. Um what they're really the three protagonists are really up against is, is this system, this kind of uh this society that's very structured and very hierarchical. And all three protagonists are they have a different relationship with the system. You know, one of them kind of was a, a a cog in the system and has since gotten out and then one of them is still sort of at the bottom of the system and one of them is at the very top of the system. But all three of them are 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 working in their own ways to kind of poke holes in this, this structure of of oppression. And but they also they all have a different perspective on it. They're all approaching it from different ways and but they are all ultimately kind of fighting against the same thing. So that's really what what unites them in the end, even though they all seem like they're all in very different places, um, both physically and then kind of mentally and circumstantially, um, by the end, they all their stories all join because they are all sort of in this same battle together.
1: I really like to focus on the system instead of one mm-hmm. villain that's become kind of tiresomely predictable in books and movies, the snarling mm-hmm. or overly quiet mm-hmm. villain. One thing Mm -hmm. that's interesting about your characters is the difference between how they perceive themselves and how others perceive them. So uh, coming back to Lark, uh, she's called Mm -hmm. the Sunshield Bandit because she operates by deflecting the sun off of her buckler into the eyes of stagecoach blind uh, guards blinding them. And she uses the name Lark among her friends, though she's anything but a sweet desert songbird. Varan is impressed with her crispness, sense of purpose, and muscles, especially when he happens on her only in her shorts. <laughs> but, like, <laughs> she used to be called knit. Uh, mm-hmm. So is she as strong as she appears to be, or has she changed over time?
0: Yeah, um, yeah, that's a good question. So, yeah, her, her name when she was kind of um, uh, an, this sort of wandering orphan and, and um, working in these labor camps, uh, was knit which is what you call like a little bug um, it's just a name that would have been given to her just to to, to call her something um, and yeah since then she's chosen this name Lark for herself because it's like you said it's this one sort of pretty sweet thing in the desert it's just, it's just the singing of this bird that she she hears um, so yeah I think I think she she does certainly have insecurities that she feels like she has to push to the side because she just doesn't have the time or the luxury to worry about them. She has so many other responsibilities trying to care for this group of basically sick kids in her camp of outlaws um, and and keep everyone safe um, that she just can't, she doesn't feel like she can worry about herself. And so I think anytime she feels um, discomfort, uh, like emotionally, she probably just pushes that away but I think ultimately, is she as strong as she appears to be? I think she's probably even stronger than she thinks she is. And certainly she knows she can hold her own in a fight and that she's physically strong. But as we see towards the end of the book, um her identity really, uh, which was so kind of strong before as the Sunshield Bandit, her identity really is just kind of in shambles by the end of the book. And uh, especially in book two, we start seeing her reckoning with this, this identity crisis and Ultimately, she's able to accomplish so much more than I think she ever would have thought she could when she was just quote unquote just the sunshield bandit. so so yeah, I think she while she has insecurities and and things that she probably feels like she's not very strong with that she kind of pushes to the side, I think ultimately she's she's even stronger than even
1: she knows. Well, I'm looking forward to book two. Uh, do we have any idea when it might be coming out?
0: Yeah, it should be spring of next year, so around the same time this one came out this year. Uh, I don't have an exact date for it, but um, as far as I'm aware, it's that spring 2021 season.
1: Okay, great. Um, back to Lark and Varan. Their relationship mm-hmm. evolves over time. When Lark first meets Varan, mm-hmm. he's dressed up in fine clothes, so she thinks of him as the dandy. Is this an accurate <laughs> description of Varan?
0: Um kind of yes but also no um he, he's it's definitely the image that he portrays he's he gives this image of being this sheltered pampered prince and he is but it's not it's not the image i think it's not his image by choice um and if he had his his way he would probably be projecting a very different kind of image so um so it's definitely i think how a lot of people see him including someone like lark but it's it's maybe not not how it, it's not congruent with I think how he would like to see himself um, internally. So yeah, so it's it's a it's kind of a funny funny dichotomy there.
1: <laughs> well, it was to me too, since he really uh, obviously worships the wood rangers in his home yeah. country, and he would he would prefer to be wearing leather boots and be out in the woods right. if he could. Right. Right. But, Your characters seem so fresh and real, and I thought their dialogue really sparkled. Are some of your characters based on friends or people you've known?
0: Um, So I try not to write characters that are directly drawn from people I know, but I once heard another author say that all of her characters are like tiny bits of herself grown into a completely new person, which I think is a really good uh, kind of illustration of how to create a character or you know how to write a new character um they're not reflections of uh or or for for me anyway they're not a reflection directly of a person that I know but they're like little bits of of me or of another person that are sort of grown into their own completely new character um so that said uh with my my job as a ranger um there when I go out to the the parks during the summer, I'm often, we often get kind of thrown together with this new group of people that are all, we come from all over the place and we have all different backgrounds and we're expected, you know, very quickly to be able to work together and trust each other and um, be professionals with each other. And I think that's very similar to what happens in this book. Um, Tamsin and Viren and Lark, they all start in very different places. um, But as they come together, you know, first Lark and Viren and then eventually Tamsin, they uh they realize they have to they have to be able to trust each other very, very quickly. And that's something that's very similar to the experiences that I have when um I start my job as a ranger in the summer times. Um and then also just the people that I work with are they're always really strong, passionate people. Um and they come like I said, we come from different backgrounds. And so it's it's kind of this mixing and blending of of people from all over the place that have all different kinds of um histories and, and passions. Uh, just kind of getting thrown together. Um, That's something that's really relevant, I think, with this group of protagonists.
1: So let's talk a bit about the world building. Lark lives in the desert, a place which sounds a lot like the Old West. Then there's the mm-hmm. capital of Mukai, which sounds a little bit like a settlement of skyscrapers nestled in a rainforest. We've got mm-hmm. sweet potatoes and coffee, Yet people fight with crossbows, so there is no clear mm-hmm. chronological anchor in our timeline either. We could say it's a mashup. Yet each place mm-hmm. has a very clear identity, which functions believably within the novel. How did you manage to pull that off?
0: Um, yeah, luck. Um, <laughs> 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 some of it was. Um, some of it was. So this is a this this duology, um, Sunshield, and then it's its sequel are kind of a companion series to my first trilogy and they, you don't have to have read the first trilogy to read Sunshield. It'll make sense on its own, but the the technology that I had in place in my first trilogy really kind of determined the technology for the second trilogy. So yeah, we're in sort of a pre-gunpowder world technologically, but we also have this kind of large scale industry and um, like you said, these sort of uh, bits and pieces of our world that we think of as more, more, kind of recent developments and so um part of part of that it was just kind of set in place from the trilogy but it it also i think because i just kind of went into it with a certain amount of confidence like well this is just how the world is so we're gonna make it work um it, it really kind of manifested in in its own way so yeah like you say it's 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 got these um definite uh uh, elements of a Western, but there's no gunslinging or anything like that. They're using crossbows and swords. So so it, it just, I think because it just was already in place, I was able to approach it with that, that certain level of confidence and uh, and
1: pull it off, I guess. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, usually practicing in the first couple of novels, really uh, subsequent novels come out even stronger, seems like. Mm-hmm. Uh, Prince Varan his country is a forested country, the Silverwood Mountains, and their proper management of nature is seen as the highest calling. Uh, I'm assuming your work as a park ranger influenced this nation building, and can enlarge on that a little more?
0: Yeah, definitely. So just from kind of an environmental standpoint, um, my work as a ranger always inspires the settings that I write about. Most of the settings that I write are directly drawn from places that I've worked or done research in and, and Viran's country is no exception. He's, he, the Silverwood Mountains are direct, all the flora and fauna and everything they encounter is directly drawn from my work in my first park, uh, Great Smoky Mountains National Park in Tennessee, North Carolina which is kind of my like regional backyard. This is where I grew up. So, mm-hmm. um, But that, that sense of, you know, this sort of, sort of cultural sense that his people have of, you know, look, if you don't take care of your environment, nothing else matters because we're, we're all going to die. Basically um, is something that, that it did come from my work as a park ranger. Um, his mother, May, who's the the protagonist of my very first novel, and she's the one who's really um, kind of fighting to keep this sort of environmental balance in her country. Um, it really came from understanding how to, how to exist and use your environment while still protecting it as well. So I think some people get caught up in, there's, it's like an either-or. You either are degrading and using your environment you know, for progress or you're preserving it you know, completely pristine. And there's this whole other you know, facet of conservation, which is you can use it, you can rely on it, you just, we just have to do it in a way that's you know, sustainable, to use a word that's you know kind of tossed around a lot. But to, to do it in a way that can be maintained... So that our world stays healthy, but also we have a thriving society. So that's really her, um, her mindset. And that's really trickled down to Viren where, you know, the, the world and our environment is something that we rely on. It's something that we need to use, but that it needs to be done in a way that will protect it. And so that's why he's so being in Makoya in this glass palace where they have these pristine gardens inside that you know, you never see a wilted flower or a wilted leaf or something. It's very baffling to him because it's very different from his uh, his culture and his sense of we're all very much kind of ingrained in the nature around us. And rather in Makoya, it's like this kind of sterilized, uh, almost like a facsimile of the natural world trapped inside this glass dome. So that, that worldview of his definitely puts him at odds with his environment in Makoya.
1: Yeah, so we were talking about those windows in McCoya. They sound very beautiful mm-hmm. because they allow those perfect indoor plantings to thrive. But mm-hmm. uh, tell us about the dark side to those windows specifically.
0: Yeah, yeah. So McCoya is known for their glass industry. They have some of the most kind of advanced glass technology in, in the world. And they show it off in these massive glass domes on the palace and throughout the city. And it has kind of a, a, a couple different ramifications. I mean, there's, first of all, there's that society that we talked about, this kind of hierarchical society of, okay, they're able to, you know, create and erect this glass um, that's very impressive, but where does it come from? Who makes it? And how are they able to afford this this luxurious display of wealth and power. And it's, you know, once you start delving into that system, it's very clear that they're able to exploit people who are less powerful um, to, you know, to quarry the sand, to make the glass, to install the glass, to keep it clean, to replace it when it's broken. And so it really represents this, this kind of glittering opulent image that they're trying to project, but which is also hiding the really stratified uh, inequalities in this society um, that everyone's operating in, so that's kind of a dark side to it, but then also, as Viren discovers and i won't get I won't give away too much because this becomes sort of a plot point, but as Viren ventures outside very briefly, uh, he start he notices as he's walking along the palace kind of walls all these dead birds on the windowsills and the courtyards on the ground by the foundation, and he realizes very quickly because of that that sense that we talked about earlier of being very connected to your environment and that we're all sort of You know, intertwined with our environment, he notices very, very quickly that there must be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of birds every day that hit the glass and die. And he's, you know, this isn't something that's really talked about. Nobody really says anything about it. And the birds are just kind of cleaned up and thrown in the garbage. And it's not something that people really notice. Or to him, it seems like people, you know, just don't really care. And, uh, and we see this in our world too. This is something that I drew directly from, um, things that we see happen in our world where we put up these giant, uh you know, skyscrapers or football stadiums or whatever, and we don't even stop to think, is this structure in the plates of a, you know, a, a migratory flyway? Is this where birds are flying every season? Is this some place that's um, going to be, you know, in the way of a bird that's trying to get from one place to another? And, uh, and at, at, you know, at the outset, it may seem like, Okay, well, they're just, little, they're just little birds. Does it really matter? You know, they, you know, it's sad maybe that they die, but is it really such a big deal? And as Viren kind of finds out throughout the course of this book, uh, once you start take, taking, a, you know, a chunk of the ecosystem out in those huge numbers, it's going to have a really, really big impact down the line. And that's, those are the little pieces that he starts to put together and really come to these kind of startling revelations about how something that seems just kind of tangential, like birds hit the glass, that's too bad, but that it can have this really, really big ramification for society that people, it might, it might be difficult to see that connection at first. So, yeah, so the, it's, it's a neat kind of juxtaposition of these big glittering glass windows um, alongside these these systems of kind of this uh, oppressive hierarchy and then also this environmental uh, degradation as well.
1: So despite McCoy's faults, I did love the idea of their festivals and the times of the year being ruled by very specific radiations of colors. And tell mm-hmm. us a little bit more about the relationship of color to life in that society.
0: Yeah, so Makoya um, bases its, its calendar and all of its social functions and all of its titles in the sense of this this hierarchy in its society on colors on the spectrum and this came directly from kind of uh, we get a little bit more into this in book two uh, and we, we don't really touch on it too much in book one but the the way they perceive the the spiritual or sort of religious force in their world is called the light and every country sees the light differently uh, and in Makoya they see the light through the rainbow uh, because it's a very rainy country it's, it's, uh, it's kind of a temperate rainforest climate um, it's, it's raining a lot. And so a rainbow, when the sun breaks through, it's something that's very sudden. It's very, um, you can never predict when it's going to happen. And so everyone just drops what they're doing to, uh, to see the rainbow. And they have sort of this, this, you know, ritual, almost prayer that they say when this happens. And so that sort of trickled down into how they would structure their society. So because the rainbow is something that's very spiritual to them. Um, This is, it it became, it's become ingrained as how they navigate and structure um, their, you know, everything in their society. And I wanted it to be a very rigid structure. I wanted it to be something that an outsider like Viren would be, you know, you could sort of read about the basics in a book, but once you get into the court and you start seeing like, okay, <laughs> we're in green, you know, clearly this is supposed to communicate to somebody else that these are my political intentions, but then it's like the wrong shade of green and you're clashing with someone who thought they were your ally and you're, you've are you paired it with, you know, a different color, that you know, tells somebody com- something completely different. So I wanted to have all these sort of nuances that, Someone like Viren would be just completely baffled by, it. and uh, and and that an outsider would just have no, you know, would be very would struggle to really um, make sense of. So yeah, it was a lot of fun to think about different, you know, very very subtle shades of colors and how how they might be used to um, in in like a society and a political sphere. Um, so that was yeah, that was a lot of fun to to create and
1: to explore. And then another unique element of their country, they have the court position of Ashoki. Can you tell us a mm-hmm. little bit about that?
0: Yeah, so the position of the court Ashoki is it's kind of a mashup between like a court jester and a like political strategist. So it's someone who is so because the society and this structure and especially this court is very rigid and everyone's really keyed into, you know, what colors am I wearing and how is that, you know, translating to somebody else and that kind of thing, um, they have this position that's been part of the court for centuries, for generations, where this person, their job is to kind of look, kind of punch through all of the, all of the, the, the sparkles and shine that's happening on the surface and get to the the truth, get to the heart of the matter, and then kind of wrap that up into a story or a parable or a song, and and perform it for the court. And this came from um, this, the idea of court jesters being sort of, in a sense, some of the only people who could like poke fun at the king or poke fun at the court or the politics and kind of get away with it. Um, and they are always being sort of grains of truth embedded in those in those stories and songs. So it's kind of like that. She's she's not just. It's not just. A humorous position. It's meant to be a position that holds a lot of power and a lot of influence, and and people in the court are always very paying very close attention to what their Ashoki says about what's happening in the court and in the country. It's also how people get news of the country. Um, so it's an Ashoki's job to know kind of what's happening out beyond the palace and kind of bring that news in and tell it to the the nobility uh, and the people making the laws. So um, yeah, so that's. Kind of this facet of this court that's become a really really influential role over the course of history uh, and that was really a sense i just wanted to look at the the idea of lyrics and poetry and music becoming ingrained in the politics of a place you know sometimes we think of the arts or poetry or something as, as something tangential to you know the sciences or mathematics or, or even politics um, but I think a lot of us are, are fully aware that, that the arts play such a huge role in our society and, uh, and they really have the power to influence how we, how we act, how we make decisions, um, what we perceive as right is right and wrong. And so that's really what I was exploring here. Was, was that kind of sense sort of channeled into a, an actual political position in, in this place of power?
1: Yeah, it's like we have a female Bob Dylan or Bono at the court, maybe, <laughs> if, if yeah, you have yeah, the right yeah. one. <laughs> well, yeah. you've got quite an imagination. I imagine you like to read a lot yourself. I do,
0: mm-hmm, absolutely.
1: Well, tell us about some of the books that you're reading and might recommend to listeners while they're waiting for your second book to come out.
0: Yeah, um, so I have, yeah, I have a lot of books that I've enjoyed recently. Um one my favorite book series of all time is The Queen's Thief series by Megan Wallin Turner. And that the final book in that series comes out this year, and I'm really excited about that. Um some of my favorite like fantasies recently that have come out just in the last couple of years. Um there's a middle grade book called Tristan Strong Punches a Hole in the Sky by Kwame Ambalia. And I read this book to my kids and we loved it. It was it was so they, they they were like clamoring for another chapter every single night, and it was really really funny. Uh, he has a really funny writing voice, but it was also a really really poignant story as well that he wove in like seamlessly. Um, because all of the villains, all of the big bads in the book are inspired by the middle passage of slaves on their way over the Atlantic um, to work in these plantations on these colonies, and uh, it was really amazing how he was how he sort of threaded that. Uh, Into this story uh, of sort of you know kind of whimsy and magic, and um, so it was really like I said it was really funny and my kids and I laughed a lot. But it also was a really good way to open up these conversations um, with my kids about about the Middle Passage and about um, you know how this impacted um, children, you know, and 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 people and families. And so that was that was a really really cool read, um, and a really important read, I think.
1: repeat the name of that and the author more slowly? I didn't catch it.
0: Yeah, sure. (laughs) Sorry, the book is called Tristan Strong Punches a Hole in the Sky, and the author's name is Kwame Umbalia, K-W-A-M-E M-B-A-L-I-A and, uh, yeah, he's he's, the author himself, he's a he's a really neat guy, and he's cool to follow online, he posts a lot of fun stuff, so, um, Yeah, so that was a fun middle-grade read. And then I also, I know this one came out a couple years ago, but I'm still not over it, and it's The Bells by Danielle Clayton. Uh, And this book, it's like this dark, decadent fantasy. And it's kind of similar to what we were talking about with McCoya, where you have this kind of glittering, opulent facade that hides this very grim, um, uh, oppressive system underneath. And that's very similar. The Bells is... uh, this story of this very um, decadent world that's layered on top of these layers of oppression underneath and uh, that, that was a really fun read and the second book came out um, last year I think or the year before um, so yeah that's The Bells by Danielle Clayton, a lot of fun
1: You Well thanks for your recommendations it's been great talking with you It's been great talking with you too, thank you so much You're welcome Thanks for listening to me today on the New Books Network in Fantasy and Adventure channel. I've been talking to author, illustrator, and park ranger Emily B. Martin about her newest novel, Sunshield. You can follow her on Twitter, at Emily B. Martin. There she's got the B spelled out, B-E-E. Or you can visit her website, emilybmartin.net, and that's just middle initial B. She has illustrations of her characters on there, too. Join me in August when I chat with YA writer Laura Ruby about the enticingly titled Thirteen Doorways, Wolves Behind Them All. If this novel is anywhere near as creative as the title, Laura Ruby, author of The Bone Gap, will have another hit on her hands. I'm your host, Gabrielle Matthew, author of the YA Fantasy Girl of Fire, the first in the Baroness Quest series. You'll find the podcast schedule on my website, GabrielleMathieu.com. That's G-A-B-R-I-E-L-L-E-M-A-T-H-I-E-U.com. You can also follow me on Twitter to get updates about new podcasts and more at Author